Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. We're recording this episode the morning before the election. We're going to do another one the morning after the election to talk about what actually happened. Today, we're going to try and work through what the possible scenarios might mean for the ultimate fate of Brexit. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just 19.99, and they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. I am delighted that we have with us Anan Menon, who is the director of the UK in a Changing Europe, the most interesting contributor to the debate about Brexit, commentary and analysis from before it was Brexit, when it was just a looming referendum. It's a gleam in our eye. And Helen Thompson, another of the most interesting contributors to the debate about Brexit. When I asked our producer, Catherine, how we should structure this conversation, she said, just let them talk. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and we'll see where we get to. We're a day out. We don't know what's going to happen. There are still basically two scenarios here. Johnson gets a majority and the withdrawal agreement bill passes, Mm -hmm. even if it's a relatively small majority, even if it's maybe even if it's only 10 or there's a hung parliament. So let's do the first one first. It's still on the betting markets, the slightly more probable one, but it's getting closer and closer all the time. And then if Johnson gets a majority, however slender, and all his candidates have signed a pledge that they will back the withdrawal agreement bill, so it passes, what happens next? What's the next crunch point? Because that is not getting Brexit done. I mean, I think if he has a majority of one, we leave at the end of January. I don't think a, a single Tory MP votes against Brexit before the end of January. But then, in a sense, the fun begins. And actually, perhaps of all the amazing things about Brexit, one of the most amazing is we still don't know what the Prime Minister wants. So he's persuaded half his party to back him, as far as I can make out, on a pledge that, don't worry, we can just drop out without a trade deal at the end of 2020. And he persuaded the other half of his parliamentary party to back him by saying, I'm a one-nation Tory, and of course I wouldn't do anything as rash as that. He's going to have to make a choice at some point. And it is absolutely remarkable that we simply don't know which way he's going to go. So there are two ways of looking at it. After January, some people say, well, look, he's going to be a prisoner like his two predecessors of the ERG, who are not going to let him sign up to either extending transition, which they've ruled out in their manifesto rather oddly, or to EU rules or a customs union or anything like that. So it's going to have to be a very hard Brexit indeed. And there are others who say, actually, if he gets a big enough majority, he's free to let his, you know, inner one nation Tory out, and then he will go for a softer form of Brexit. Jonathan Porter, as my friend and colleague, maintains and will bet anyone that moves on this that we will be de jure or de facto in the single market in mid-2021. And when is the crunch point? You say we don't know what he thinks. At some point, even even he has to jump one way or the other. The first crunch point is the end of June, because under the withdrawal agreement, by the end of June, we have to ask for an extension of transition if we're going to want one. And actually, there's a remarkable degree of consensus amongst the lawyers I know that it's very, very hard, if not impossible, to do it after that. So May and June will be taken up with that debate, I imagine. I think that the politics of it, in terms of the Conservative Party, if Johnson, if the Conservatives were to be 
have a majority in the House of Commons after this election. The way that that works out will depend on what seats have been won and what seats have been lost. So I think that even if it's a relatively small majority, there's still a reasonable chance that actually the RG are going to be significantly reduced in influence because the very nature of the win that will have been constructed will come from seats that are in the North, Midlands, possibly Wales, that will push the Conservative Party out of necessity in a in a certain direction, which is going to be away from economic risk-taking in pursuit of something that's a more free market, very free trade orientated future economic relationship with the European Union. So I think that if you look at it from Johnson's point of view, he's got a party management problem, but the extent of the party management problem depends on which MPs are actually in in the House of Commons. Now, I still think that even if you've got a reasonable number of ERG MPs in the House of Commons, is, is it will be an extraordinary risk for any British Prime Minister, let alone a Conservative Prime Minister, to take to contemplate the complete breakdown of our trade relationship with the European Union. So I'd be very surprised if that's the direction of travel. Now, he will have to swallow quite a lot in order to shift from the position that he's articulated so far, which is about against extending the, the transition. But I don't think any of us can think that you know Boris Johnson is sort of hung up on consistency and sticking to the promises that he makes. I kind of agree. And I kind of think, you know, if we end up with Tory MPs for Wolverhampton South and wherever, where there's a big concentration of manufacturing, particularly, you know, automotive, will those MPs sit quietly by and let the Prime Minister carry out a Brexit that wrecks the automotive industry? We don't know. But against that, I'd, I'd say Andrea Jenkins. You know, <laughs> why should she have? Uh, why should she have any influence in the? Well, no, but, Boris Johnson all I'm saying is, you know, Andrea Jenkins represents one of those seats, doesn't she? She's in a West Yorkshire seat, and the logic doesn't hold for her. So we 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 don't know yet. I mean, it's one of the things that always amazes me at elections: how little we know about the people standing to be MPs, what their views are, how many of these people are likely to be in the RG, how many people are likely to be moderate Tories. We just don't know until we've seen them in the House. And also what their views are about their relationship to their constituency. Because the other thing that will be true is if Johnson wins even a relatively small majority, the next election will be a long way off, presumably. No one is then going to be thinking that in 18 months we're going back to the polls. Hmm. At some point, presumably, they'll repeal the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, but that won't be a priority. Five years is a long old time. And it's not completely clear to me that the relationship to the constituency is going to drive this. I think you've also got to bear in mind, though, is, is whatever else Johnson has done before the election was came about, he restored discipline in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. He you know, got every single one of those Conservative MPs voting for the withdrawal bill, which, some, which people would have said was you know, near impossible even a few weeks previously to that. The reason why the ERG had the influence that it did in terms of the end of Theresa May's premiership and the withdrawal agreements was because party discipline had broken down and Theresa May didn't find any way of of restoring it under the conditions of the Fixed Term Parliament Act, which ruled out using confidence votes in order to get those meaningful votes through the House of Commons. Now, you can say that if the Conservatives achieve a majority and it looks like then we will leave the European Union by the 31st of January, maybe party discipline will break down again. But I'm not so sure, particularly because I think this election will have nonetheless demonstrated that the Conservatives have, whatever happens, a, at least a medium-term problem and more like a short-to-medium-term problem because younger voters simply are not going to vote for them in anything you know, like the numbers in which they've done in the past. And, and that is a already a problem for the Conservatives because younger voters have generally been the generation least likely to favour them. How does it look from Europe? 
they also have choices to make. And by Europe, we can mean various different things by that. The assumption has been that European leaders and officials in the EU have assumed a Johnson victory. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they seem to quite quickly pivot to the thought that this guy is going to be prime minister for a while and we need to work with that as a background assumption. That means that, as you say, we will leave the European Union if he remains as prime minister. Mm-hmm. Is there still likely to be a sort of psychological or political shock when this actually happens? So they might be reconciled to Johnson being prime minister. Are they really geared up to the thought that we're, we're gone, do you think? More and more so, yeah. I think, yes, there will be a shock when we leave. I mean, here and there, I think when that reality sinks in and it will change the way the European Union works quite profoundly. But I think there is more and more a sense that we need to just get this over and done with. Though, mixed in with that is the fact that they quite like getting our checks particularly at the moment when they're discussing the new budget, actually a regular stream of income from uh, over the channel doesn't go amiss. I think then it gets quite interesting, doesn't it? Because the sense I'm picking up from Brussels is what Boris Johnson has spoken about so far in terms of the relationship he's after is so thin that people there are saying, well, actually, you know, it is slightly better than WTO Brexit, but it's not loads better than a WTO Brexit, what he's proposing. You know, if he's, if he does, if he's not going to sign up to level playing field, there's not much we can give him anyway. So there's a conversation, I think, going on in Brussels about how flexible they should be if the best they can hope for is the thin gruel of the kind of deal the Prime Minister seems to be after. So it'll be interesting to see how they set out their stall after the election, because I suspect that they're not going to be as amenable as they were when he renegotiated the deal. And that does assume that the thin gruel is what's on offer, and the previous tactic, which is to use the pressure points to bring the UK back in line with something that's more congenial to the European perspective, is much harder after we've left. But as you say, there are these crunch points coming up. He's got a huge decision to make, both for internal politics, for the future of the UK economy, among other things, they've still got sticks to beat him with. I mean, the other option, which is to drag him back from where he says he is to something more amenable, is that... Yeah, I mean, my, my fundamental problem with this conversation, I suppose, is I just don't know which way he's going to go. Yeah. I can make a plausible argument either way. There's part of me that says he's not just going to drop us out on WTO terms because the impact on the economy is going to be such that it's hard to see them winning again four years later. The other half of me says... This party has proven that it's willing to do that, and there will still be a number of MPs who try and force him into that position. So I genuinely don't know which way he'll go. On that question, I think, though, that it's not clear that how many people in the Conservative Party or the the Parliamentary Party, as it was before the election was called, really actually want a WTO Brexit. Mm -hmm. There are a few, I don't doubt, but I've never been convinced that there are that many. And the fact that they were all brought in line for the withdrawal agreement. I know you can say, well, there's a question of then what happens if we don't get a, an extension to the transition in June. But the fundamental problem that the ERG had with the first withdrawal agreement was they thought it was going to keep the United Kingdom trap as they saw it in the customs union forever. So I don't think their commitment, and I mean by their, the ERG's commitment to a WTO exit has really in any sense been put to the test by what we've seen so far. I think the other thing that's happened, though, since the EU gave us the extension to the 31st of January is is that within the EU, French-German relations have got a lot more fraught than what they were 
even then. And, and there's there's clearly been a build-up of pressure going on some time in the uh, Macron-Merkel um, relationship. But it really came to the fore after Macron's comments about NATO experiencing a brain death. Uh, and then you know, it being reported, without anybody denying it, that Merkel had basically slapped him down and said that she kept having to basically sort out all the broken China that he caused because he seemed to like disruption too much. And that she was fed up of clearing up after his messes, so to speak. And at the heart of that is a really profoundly difficult question, not just for the European Union, but for the United States and for us, if we leave the European Union, about what the security position for the European Union is going to be at a time when NATO is under pressure, huge pressure. And it isn't just coming about because of Trump, it's coming about because of the situation in the Middle East too. And it's very clear that the, the French and the Germans don't agree about this, and that Britain is in the middle, because on the side of being pro-NATO, it's more like Germany. But on the side of actually having some commitment to spending money on defence, it's much more like France. And I, I can't really see how the security question can any longer stay out of the way in which the discussions about Britain's future relationship with the European Union develops. I agree, and I think it's one of the things we just haven't spoken about enough. The geopolitics of what's going on in general, but also the importance of our security relationship with the European Union. And on things like data sharing for police and counter-terrorism, I'm concerned that that will be one of the victims of this Brexit process because I don't see the European Union being willing to bend their rules to accommodate us, which means we have to sign up to some form of ECJ authority. Robert Toombs, who's appeared on this podcast, leading Brexiteer, wrote a pretty challenging and interesting piece in The Spectator last week, which was partly about what he thought was the unappreciated psychological shock to Europe that our actual departure would have, particularly on questions of security. He also made the point, which hadn't occurred to me, that the business is still going to have to be conducted in English. I don't know if this is true, but because that has become the language of... I mean, it is one of the deep ironies here. I don't know what Macron feels about that, whether he's going to try and stop it. But, like, you know, we leave, but there are still huge dependencies there. And maybe they're not negotiating tools. <laughs> we can't negotiate. <laughs> we let Taking you use our language English. Home. Exactly. But we can take other things home too. I mean, we tend to think of it as the Europeans holding our feet to the fire, to use that awful phrase. But this is still a negotiation, and there are huge stakes both ways, aren't there? There are. I'm just not sure anyone on either side thinks particularly strategically anymore. There's a geostrategic complacency about the European Union, and there has been for a long, long time, and I'm not sure to what extent, with some exceptions like the French, that has been shaken. What I do detect in Central and Eastern Europe and amongst the Baltic states in particular is this growing sense of, hang on a sec, there's an important security relationship with the United Kingdom that we have to preserve. But as ever, the question there is whether the stakes are high enough for them to be willing to burn political capital on that issue. And that I don't know. I mean, there are so many different wars that people are fighting inside the European Union at the moment, figuratively, that I, I don't know for a fact whether those governments will actually come to the table and say, look, we need to show greater flexibility. Because and, and when you say burn capital, you mean with the Germans, essentially? Yeah. If you look at it from the point of view of you know, Estonia, it's kind of absurd that their security considerations are being subordinated through this whole set of discussions to questions about what happens in, you know, on the Irish border. But the reason why they have is is because... Are you saying the Estonian-Russian border has more no, what, what I mean is, I'm just potential looking, to disrupt? Look, look, if, you, if you're Estonia and, uh, and you're very NATO-dependent, and that Britain is the one of the two most important 
by some distance NATO players in the in the European Union and then you're being told that the future relationship of Britain and the European Union turns on whether there's customs checks on the Irish border not on the NATO question as I say if you just look at it in an objective sense that looks quite absurd from the Estonian point of view obviously not from the Irish point of view but the difficulty is is, is that the way in which the, the European Union has thus far dealt with the Brexit question, which in one sense from its point of view makes a certain sense, but I think it comes at a very high price, is to say it's all about protecting the single market. And all these other questions are going to be subordinated to the supposed, at least, integrity of the single market. Now, I think that when that becomes difficult is though when the NATO question is really actually come to the fore. And that's in itself nothing to do with Britain leaving the European Union. That's to do with the fact that there's a profound difference between the way in which the French and the Germans think about the security arrangements for the European Union and that Macron has got incredibly frustrated with what he sees as is NATO's inability to deal with French problems in North Africa and and the Middle East and incredibly frustrated, it would seem, with Turkey's membership of NATO. And once those things have been put on the table in the way in which Macron has done over the over the last month, I, I don't think they can go back. And you can see it in the fact that Merkel and Macron's relationship has become as strained as it has. One more question before we get on to a hung parliament. The German government, German-French relations have broken down. The relations within the German Grand Coalition are strained because mm-hmm. the SPD have moved in a particular direction. It's still thought that it will hold together because the thing that both parties are terrified of is an election. But it is a weak government. I mean, it does look from the outside like an increasingly fragile government. It is a weak does that Does that mean that people might be more tempted to not burn political capital, but actually try and assert themselves? I mean, are the Germans weaker in this period of the next six months? Say the Merkel government holds together through June. Do they still call the shots? Yes, because they have enormous structural power inside the European Union. But I think it's not a question of weakness. It's a question of sort of almost sort of appalling passivity is the Germans have kind of just disappeared. The notion that Macron could say the things he said about bringing Russia back into the fold, not only without talking to the Germans first, but without there being any public German reaction, is just remarkable. The Germans have just vanished from the scene because they're preoccupied with what's going on at home, it seems to me. And that means that actually... Not a lot gets done at the European level. And one of the key players is just absent at a time when we should be having a debate about these things. I think the reason why we've seen as much EU unity as we have seen in regard to the Brexit negotiations is because the fundamental question of like, what does the EU do if Britain leaves the European Union? And what kind of relationship should the European Union be then trying to have hasn't been asked. Because if you try and ask that question within the European Union, you're going to get a lot of disunity. Uh, not least because it's from the EU's point of view, even in their own terms, even if you actually factored in the economic questions and the geopolitical questions and the security questions, it's not at all clear what the most plausible answer to that question is. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
The other possibility is a hung parliament, but then within a hung parliament, there are multiple mm-hmm. possibilities to the point where people have been saying it makes a huge difference, two seats one way or the other. The Tories on 317 is very different from the Tories on 319. Were it to be the case that Boris Johnson could not continue in office, mm-hmm. which seems remote at this point, but it's still definitely within the bounds of possibility, are we inevitably then looking at a second referendum, do you think? I mean, can people at least one day out from the election think that the two pathways are broadly Johnson remains in office and we leave, Johnson leaves office and we go to a second referendum? No, I don't think it's that easy. I I wonder, I really do wonder whether a Corbyn minority government will be able to legislate for a referendum. There are a lot of very, very difficult things that referendum is going to have to address from the question to the franchise. I imagine the the SNP and the Lib Dems will be pushing for 16-year-olds to be able to vote, for European citizens to be able to vote. I'm not sure all Labour MPs will be happy with that. A number of Labour MPs have already said they're not going to be voting in favour of allowing a Scottish referendum. So there are all sorts of issues that will come up. My sense is, actually, if we end up with Corbyn as Prime Minister we are more likely to have an election in the spring than we are to have a referendum. But how does Corbyn become Prime Minister without a second referendum being the thing that he offers the people to keep him in office? That's the bit I don't... Well, there's a difference between what he offers and what his party are willing to deliver in Parliament. Right, so he becomes Prime Minister on a second referendum prospectus, doesn't deliver it, we have another election. I think that's perfectly plausible. I mean, he hasn't got the most united of parliamentary parties. Again, as with the Conservatives, we have to wait and see what the makeup of that party is. But I just see enormous problems ahead in trying to get that legislation through. So is the ironic consequence of this that actually the route to a second referendum is a Johnson minority government? Because there is a thought that but this is what I've thought said from the start about the Liberal Democrats' tactics. That was the most obvious route to a second referendum, was a Johnson minority government that relied on Liberal Democrat supply and confidence, and the price of which would have been a second referendum. Now, whether Johnson could have delivered that, you might say that Johnson would have preferred not to have been Prime Minister, given the party management problems that that would cause. But it's a much clearer route to a second referendum, not least because you've actually got something as the leave option that's already there. In Corbyn's case, he's got to do some negotiating yeah. and he's got also to secure an extension for having said negotiations. Again, I wouldn't say necessarily a complete given, whereas an extension in order to have a second referendum on a withdrawal agreement that's already there, that seems much more plausible. So you say that was the best bet for the Liberal Democrats, so they may get it. Is there not potentially some deep strategic genius at work in Joe Swinson. So say Johnson, it's completely plausible that as a result of tomorrow's election, Johnson will be short of a majority, but it'll be very, very hard for the other parties to mm-hmm. put together a government. So Johnson governs, not with the DUP. So he has to offer a second referendum to the Liberal Democrats. Are we sure he would? That's the question. Yeah, no, yeah. indeed. But I. But uh, it's a clearer, all I'm saying is it's a clearer route in principle to the second referendum than the Corbyn route to the second referendum. But if you were Boris Johnson confronted with that scenario, you could think, OK, I'll hand over to Corbyn. He won't be able to govern for long. And actually, if we end up having another election, we can go back to the people and say, well, we told you it would be chaos. Now, give us that majority. So I think that's a really interesting question because it's another one like you don't know which way he's going to jump. Yeah. So it's two things that are complete anathema. Hand over to Corbyn, have a second referendum. I have no idea, but I think handover to Corbyn is harder. 
I actually think if you are a Tory, just that thing of giving mm. Downing Street to the Labour Party under any circumstances, particularly these circumstances, relative to thinking oh, that there's still, a, yeah. there's still a way out, Cummings will play it for you. you know, Cummings will talk him through, game these scenarios. I think the handing over to Corbyn thing is potentially a bigger leap. I think as well, it would depend on what terms were offered and then could be accepted from the Liberal Democrats, because I find it hard to believe that he could accept a second referendum and agree that there would then be legislation to allow votes for 16-year-olds and votes for EU citizens, because I think that's uh, an ask too far to expect the Parliamentary Conservative Party to vote for that. It does also have the advantage that it kind of disaggregates the Scottish referendum from the... So the Labour version of it, those things are going to be knotted up in some complicated way. The Tory version of it, he can at least make an offer to the quote-unquote unionist parties that include the Liberal Democrats to separate out the SNP. doesn't actually have to have them on board. As you say, the Corbyn version is so complicated because of the SNP role. So that's another reason why I think, I mean, we have no idea, right, what's going to happen. I, like, doing this Absolutely the day before is though, complete madness. But I still, you know, there is that weird space yeah. where Johnson is the only plausible prime minister, but he cannot pass his withdrawal agreement bill, which is almost, I mean, it makes your head explode. I mean, the other possibility, though, is, is if it says a few votes short of a majority and he can carry on as a minority prime minister, then there probably are some votes in the Labour Party even in th- this reconstructed parliamentary Labour Party, who would vote for the draw? Because, who would he's, vote for the, because he's got the, the 31st of January cliff face again. I mean, that's the other thing. After all, the default, if we can't get a government, say we become Belgium and we can't yeah. put yep. together a government, I know we're not that system. On the 31st of January, we leave without a deal. Yeah, no, no, we're, there's a sort of Groundhog Day quality to all of this, isn't there? I don't know how many Labour MPs would back the withdrawal agreement. But if you only say, say he's only two or three short, it's not difficult, I think, to imagine that two or three votes might be forthcoming. No, that's certainly conceivable. And of course, we've got a new speaker, so it won't be so easy in the situation of a minority government for Parliament to take control of its own business, I don't think. So it will run differently this time. We don't know what will happen. So it's definitely well within the bounds of possibility, and it's probably still somewhere between possible and probable that Johnson will pass his withdrawal agreement bill. And if that happens, it's a psychological shock for lots of people. People who have been campaigning either for a people's vote, which became a second referendum, or more straightforwardly for Remain. Mm. And then you've been following this for the whole duration of it. When they look back over the last three years, are there moments that they miss? Say Johnson does win. Do Remainers then look back over the last three years and torture themselves with the what-ifs or... Do you think if you're a Remainer, you feel that you gave it your best shot and this was kind of where it was going to end up anyway? Uh, No, there were moments. I wonder whether when the Labour Party was having those negotiations with Theresa May, rumour is that Number 10 were coming quite close to saying, look, we can talk about a referendum if we really have to, or you can put this through as an amendment to the legislation if you want. That might have been an opportunity. I think there's no doubt that the whole People's Vote movement has been riven by competing egos and factions and hasn't worked particularly well at all. Uh, There was this whole issue of parts of the Remain camp turning on other parts of the Remain camp, which sort of fragmented very, very badly quite early on, because the first thing that the sort of pro-referendum people did was train their guns on the soft Brexit crowd. uh, Pro-second referendum. Yeah. 
So there were sort of fissures in the soft Brexit stroke remain camp from the off. So there were lots of things that could have been done differently. Whether it would have led to a different outcome, I don't know. It seems to me there, are an awful, there were an awful lot of MPs in the last parliament who just didn't want to revisit the referendum, either because they, did, they didn't want to or because they thought it was wrong because we'd had a referendum. Whether they could ever have got the numbers, I don't know. I don't know what you think, Helen. And I, I think no, because... In the end, it runs into the into the Corbyn issue. The route to a second referendum, if there was going to be one, had to run through the Labour Party. And that posed two problems, I think. First of all, it meant that you were trying to run it through a party that had a leader who didn't want that, and enough people around him who could just about defend for long enough against the demands for Labour to move um, to that position. But it also ran into the problem, and you can see this, I think, in at work during this election campaign, which meant that those people who did want to stop Brexit but didn't think that Corbyn was a fit Prime Minister were forced to make a choice. And some people chose to prioritise stopping Brexit, but enough people chose to prioritise not having Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister. And if in we end up in a situation where Brexit does happen, then I think that reality has got quite a lot to do with explaining why the second referendum option failed. You could almost say that they put that choice back onto the electorate because after all that is the question for many voters Mm. in the election which when people hear this will be happening today. So there was a deferring of that choice too. Yeah and you can see that in Lord Ashcroft's polling that you know he's been doing all the way through the campaign he's been asking this question of would it be worse for Britain if Brexit happened or would it be worse for Britain if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister and week after week it will be worse for Britain if Jeremy Corbyn becomes Prime Minister has won by quite some distance. That's the Heseltine Ken Clark division isn't it you know the, the Tories who think having a Corbyn government is the worst of all possible worlds and the Tories who think Brexit would be even worse it's a it's a very very clear fault line. Do you think we've learned anything from the fate of the Liberal Democrats' revoke campaign? Because I think a lot of people have been struck by, and there's anecdotal evidence even, as they say, on the doorstep, that a lot of people have reacted badly to it on the grounds they say it's fundamentally undemocratic. And then the Liberal Democrats can say it's not undemocratic because we would only do this if we won a majority and the people would have endorsed it. But it seems to speak to some underlying sense that people have, which is... They want to stop Brexit, but they're also quite uncomfortable about not respecting the result of the referendum in some sense, even if that means a second referendum. It, it does seem to have exposed a gap in, in a lot of people's thinking between stopping Brexit and the ultimate step that could be taken, which would be revoked. Yeah, I and mean, it reveals a degree of sophistication, I think, in on the part of the public about the difference between parliamentary and popular sovereignty and the fact that actually there is a tension here and you're absolutely right, they're uncomfortable with it. It's very hard to tease out what went on with the Lib Dems. I mean, part of it was the problem of having two elections very close to each other and that a strategy that was perfectly adapted to a European election proved not to be so well adapted for a general election, but it's very hard to move away from that position that you've adopted for the first one. Partly, there's a question of how well Joe Swinson has performed. And partly, too, I think there's a structural issue, which is if you have, under our electoral system, a massive ideological choice to make between the two big parties, then it is almost inevitable that your attention is going to start to shift. I mean, that people will look at that. Because, I mean, we shouldn't lose from sight in all this talk about Brexit and the Brexit process that 
This is a really big ideological choice that confronts us about the role of the state, about the nature of the economy. For those people like myself who bemoan the sort of politics of competence and technocracy, I mean, this is real, raw ideological politics once again. And actually, it has been amazing in this campaign that despite that very fundamental choice we've been confronted with, we've hardly discussed it. And it does seem like particularly in the last week, there's been a shift. The Get Brexit done line seemed to hold, but that old line, which is the last week, is when people focus on what really matters to them. Yeah. And there does seem to have been a shift away from this being a Brexit election to being, as you say, I don't think anyone has mistaken this for a politics of competence election. No, absolutely. So it's, it, and, and the gap between the parties is as wide as it's been in our lifetime, not on every question, but on many of the biggest ones. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think on the Liberal Democrat question the fundamental flaw with the revoke position was is it was it was framed in one set of political circumstances when it could be presented anyway as an option between no deal and revoke and then there was no adapting adaptation went on when Johnson actually had a withdrawal agreement that he negotiated with the European Union so revoke versus a withdrawal agreement versus an orderly Brexit it's just not the same as revoke versus no deal. So that's that, revoking extremists. Because, because yeah, if, if, you, if you do it as um, no deal versus revoke, you look like you're choosing in some sense between something that's trying to establish order in the face of chaos. With the, so the revoke becomes the order position. Whereas if you put revoke against an orderly Brexit, then it looks like you're the ones who are promising the chaos. So it seems to me to be a fundamental mistake not to see that the circumstances of Brexit had changed so significantly in terms of what was on the other side that you couldn't stay in the same position. Have we learned something, if we do get on that slightly narrow but plausible scenario, to the 31st of January becoming the cliff edge again? So we've discussed in this podcast before, there are scenarios in which a UK parliament is faced with the choice between no deal and revoke. And we've learned something about the public's attitude to revoke, which the public is very, very uncomfortable with it, which means that it's at least possible, isn't it, that Parliament would have a slightly different attitude when faced with that ultimate choice? I mean, not least maybe to be driven back to the orderly Brexit of Johnson's. I mean, I'm here thinking about the possibility that Helen suggested, which is that even a minority Conservative government could, as the 31st of January approaches, pass its withdrawal agreement bill. Because revoke is not a vote winner. No, but equally we've learned what the Prime Minister's attitude to a no deal is, which is to be avoided at all costs. Uh, so we're back so, with this. Yeah. But the thing is, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I don't see, though, that in terms of the 31st of January, it seems to me that no deal is not something that there's going to be a consistency for. If Johnson is able to stay as Prime Minister as a minority government, he's still going to be pushing, leaving in an orderly way via, mm. via the withdrawal agreement. Which means you would have to revoke. We're still in that nightmarish three-way thing where you need it to be a two-way choice. Yeah, or extend. Or extend. And we could be there again. It's not that far off the 31st of January either. No, it really isn't. Um, and, and we also assume, because we've talked about this many times before, but there is no appetite from Macron or anyone else to force the issue, to really make no deal a realistic prospect so that the British Parliament has to vote for Johnson's deal? I don't think if we ask for an extension, they say no. Uh, I think they really want the withdrawal agreement. But we are back in the scenario, so so Johnson has to do something unpalatable, install Corbyn, second referendum, or ask for another extension. I actually think if I had to rank those, I'd say the thing he would least like to do is 
install Corbyn. Second would be ask for an extension. Third would be a second referendum. Okay, but you have an extension anyway then with a second referendum. Oh, yeah, but, sorry, but yeah. ask for an extension under the circumstances of the Ben Act, a kind of open-ended, we just don't know what we're going to do. Kind Give of us thing. some more time yeah. to figure this so, out. Sorry, I mean, yeah. but, you know, like getting close to the, right to the edge and just Parliament or... But I, I think on the extension front, we shouldn't, in the circumstances in which Corbyn was Prime Minister, we, we shouldn't take it for granted that that would necessarily be forthcoming because go back to your point earlier, Alan, if you're looking at it from the EU's point of view and you're thinking, OK, we may have to have another general election in the spring... Mm. when are these negotiations going to take place before that general election probably not if that looks like it's coming quite quickly after that general election well what if Labour is no longer in a position to form a government after that general election then you have those negotiations then you have a referendum that can go either way I mean that's a I mean why on earth if you're the EU would you think that that was a way you could proceed particularly given as I say that some of the questions that the EU has basically been dodging internally for the last few years are very much to the fore. Hmm. I mean, why? For two reasons. One, because you want an orderly Brexit if you're getting a Brexit and you don't want to be seen to be creating a no-deal scenario. And two, because it's just a bad look to say, no, we're not going to give you the time to have the referendum that you're going to have. But when you would have an election first, that then might not even lead to a referendum. I mean, that's... Yeah, a, it's messy, but I think it, nevertheless, if we're going back saying, look, we're going to have a referendum, Obviously, we're going to have a chat with you about our new deal first. I think it'd be very, very, I mean, I don't know. I think it'd be very, very hard. What I can tell you is I've developed a headache during the course of this conversation, <laughs> which I'd like to thank you for. And but, I was uh, going to say, if, if there was a video to go with the audio, I would like to be able to see the expression that crosses people's faces when the phrase another election in the spring passes anyone's lips. There's a kind of haunted, <laughs> headachey look to the whole thing. So we don't know. <laughs> It's a good working title for this podcast. We just don't know. Maybe to finish it again, we don't know what's going to happen, but we talked about regret, potentially regret among Remainers, and the shock for all of us. I mean, I think we've been talking, it's one of those things we've been talking about it for so long, but we actually leave. And though nothing changes if we leave in an orderly way immediately, the fact of leaving is dramatic and does represent a real pivot in British politics. Where do the Remainers go? What I mean, it's very hard to know, but how does the Remain sentiment in British politics reorient or reorganise itself, do you think? It is really interesting because if you look at the polls beyond the sort of volatility of the parties, the two tribes, Leave and Remain, have been very, very constant all year. So we've got these this new division in politics. And I suppose I remember on the... Uh, Iraq war march, being surrounded by people telling me they would never ever vote Labour again. Well, I mean, all the evidence suggests that quite a number of them did vote Labour a couple of years later. So whether or not people just move on, I'm sure there'll be a hard core that remain wedded to this cause, and maybe they'll find their home in the Liberal Democrats. But I just don't know how long this persists for. It just doesn't seem to me that Project Rejoin has got much of a future in the short term. Yeah, I, I, th I think that that's probably true, but I still think that it leaves a pretty big loser's consent problem. I think one can argue about when loser's consent after the referendum broke down and how much of it was ever there. But it's certainly, I think, that the last general election played a sig pretty significant part in it breaking down because it, for the first time, opened up a real prospect that Brexit could be stopped and took a certain fatalism about Brexit happening away from... Remainers. 
So now we're looking at them, if Brexit were to uh, happen, having to accept defeat again in ways that are mixed up now, not only with referendum politics, but with parliamentary politics, it being tied to the Conservatives, it being tied to a whole set of other issues as to why this election outcome might have happened, which is actually to do with dislike of Corbyn. I mean, certainly in the first part of the campaign, the evidence that was coming out of those seats that the Conservatives will have to win to win a majority, so in the North and the Midlands, was that what was costing Labour with its previous voters wasn't so much Brexit but Corbyn. So you've now got to accept, if you're a Remainer and accepting defeat via a parliamentary election, the part that Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party will have played in the defeat over Brexit. And so how that then works out, whether you get a big backlash against the Corbyn leadership, possibly, but it may well also be the case that the, the reason why Labour will do as well as it does, let's say it gets to 36, 37% even of the vote, will have got something to do with Corbyn's mobilisation of a certain, particularly younger younger voters. So the idea that the lesson that can be drawn from it is is simply that Corbyn has cost Labour and therefore cost the opportunity of defeating Brexit doesn't quite work either. And they'll argue they've won the popular vote. They just add up the numbers. Remain. Yeah, I mean, if Johnson wins, just preface, everything we've said is a big if. But if Johnson wins, it'll be on 43, 44% of the vote. And he will have squeezed the Brexit vote pretty much to the bone. Not quite, but very close. He will have been outvoted. (laughs) And the other thing I think it's worth saying is that if if he does win, if, 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 it will have been a fourth win for the Conservatives in some form or another. And a fifth win has never happened. Um, and I think if you were the opposition, you could expect that this is going to be a rocky old parliament for Johnson if he's prime minister. And his chances of winning again are, I mean, who knows, five years is a long time. It'll be a rocky old parliament for the Labour Party too. It will, but the likelihood of a fifth Conservative win is, on the balance of probabilities, I think it's unlikely. And the Labour Party will still presumably be the only possible alternative government. So there is a reason for Labour people, including Corbyn people, to think that next time is that real chance. Yeah, and, you know, anecdotally, there is a suggestion that insofar as there are Labour voters willing to consider voting Tory this time, it is explicitly a lending you my vote once to get this done. So this isn't a coalition that looks guaranteed to last for five years. And it may not even last beyond the 24 hours between this podcast (laughs) and the next one, which we will be broadcasting when we will do a little pivot and explain how what actually happened. How we were right. <laughs> no, I think we probably won't do that, but we'll say how what happened makes sense with the benefit of 24 hours hindsight. It won't even be 24 hours, it might be 20 minutes hindsight. If it's close, we're going to be recording our next episode while the seats are still being declared. So, yeah. <laughs> you do need a camera just for Helen's face. <laughs> this is going out on election day. Enjoy election day if you can. We will be back first thing on Friday to talk about the result in real time. The episode will go out overnight, Friday to Saturday. We're really looking forward to it. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Where are you watching it? I'm watching it at home. I'm supposed to be under the new statement party, but new states, but I haven't made my mind up with them going yet. Mm.
I'm going to be perched on that place on my sofa that I was perched on at three in the morning when Trump won, when Brexit happened, <laughs> when Cameron won, when May lost. I, so I, I like cover. Could you sit on a different part of the sofa? For <laughs> or get a new sofa. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, 2015. That was horrible. <laughs> that was my worst one. That was the one that affected me most, actually. Trump affected me most by far. Yeah. It's a total bloody soap opera, though, now, isn't it? My God. Should we just, should we just sign off with this? And you just turn the volume down. <laughs> imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.